wife and I spent eight years as church planners in northern Japan. So we didn't work in Tokyo. We actually live in the country in Australia and we really felt called to work in the country in Japan. So we worked planting churches basically in northern part of Japan. Um, Irene Nicholson in the back there in the green top is uh, one of the colleagues. She's on the way back to uh, Taiwan. So if you want to know about Asia in general or about Japan specifically, come see me. If you want to know about ministering in China or specifically Taiwan, go see Irene and you've got a wonderful resource sitting there. Folks, I want you to think for a moment of somebody you love. Okay, that could be, uh, you know, a close friend, a spouse in some people's cases here, brother, sister, sibling. How do you express your love to that person? What's something that you've done in the last day or so to show love to that person? Or what's something that you think you did to show, it's probably the best way to say it, what's something you think that you did to show love to that person? How can you love that person fully? And today I want to look at the passage of 1 John 4, and particularly verses 10 and 11, about how we are to love uh, God fully, how we are to love each other fully. I've actually titled this message, The Perilous Position of the Halfway Christian. The Perilous Position of the Halfway Christian. And the whole idea is that if God so loved us, so we ought to love one another. It's 1 John 4.11. With the thought that true love, complete love, full love for that person in your life or other people that come across in your life, should be the same as if Christ died on the cross for us and he gave himself fully, he surrendered fully, and so we should also love other people. So let's just pray briefly as we look at this passage. Father God, I just thank you for your word. We can read your word many times over and there's always something new to just show us in your passage. But Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit will just help us and guide us in truly understanding your word for us and how we are to apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name, Amen. I want to look at just briefly at the background of 1 John. Okay, Now 1 John, they reckon, was probably written about 85, 95 AD, okay, after Jesus died. The book of John, so John wrote, the book of John, he wrote 1 John, he won Revelation. The book of John was written about 90 to 100 AD. And Revelation, they can tie in a bit tighter. They say it's written about 95 to 96 AD. So when you look at those three books that John wrote, what does it tell you about John and the, and the stage of life that he was at when he wrote those three books? Any ideas? You're allowed to interact. <laughs> I'm a teacher. You can interact. You put your hand, no, don't put your hand up. Um, yeah, if you look at those three books, well, you know, Jesus died way back then. This, these three books were basically written towards the end of John's life. And so if you think about that in itself, John basically had his theology worked out. He knew, he'd experienced Jesus, lived with Jesus, but here he was working in the boondocks. He had a practical faith. He was working amongst the Gentiles. He was able to work out his theology. And so when he wrote these three books, basically at the same time, pretty much the same sort of area in the world, at about the same time, he had basically worked out his theology. It's also thought that John, when he wrote these three books, he wrote them pretty much um, to the Gentile people. 
Why incidentally? Because he wasn't in Jerusalem. He wasn't in the Jerusalem with the Jews, explaining the gospel to the Jews. He was out in the in the sticks, talking to Gentile people and really trying to work out their understanding of the gospel and explain to them in a way that they would understand. So that's pretty significant. But he was also, they say, probably writing to a degree when he wrote 1 John to the Gnostics. And the Gnostics believed that the spirit world was good and the physical was bad. And that's got a problem when it comes to Jesus. Can anybody sort of think outside the box, what's the problem going to be? That Jesus was born of the flesh, of the spiritual, of the physical, right? So for Gnostics, they did not um, believe that. They believed that God, that Jesus was born of the spirit, but he could not possibly have been born of the physical. So they had that, uh, that, that um, understanding. But what's also interesting from external evidence and commentators is that those three books were written in, in Ephesus or near Ephesus. So um, that also, as I said, he wrote these things at the ends of the earth, so to speak. But what's at stake here is that when you read 1 John 2.19, John's writing to counter these teachings of these Gnostics to a degree. Okay, not the whole book is about that, but to a degree he's writing about that. And so when he talks about these people who were, who were sent out from us, or they came out from us, but they were not of us, in 1 John 2.19, you know, he calls these people very strong words. He calls them the Antichrist in 2.18. In 2.22 he calls them liars. In 2.26 he calls them deceivers. So he didn't have very nice words to say about these people who were in the church at one stage, left the church and now are trying to deceive the people and draw them out of the church towards Gnostic teachings. But when you go through 1 John, you get these really brilliant verses. Who can tell me one verse from 1 John? But you should all know. Go and say it. Yeah, that's a good one. I hope that wasn't the one that came straight away. That's one of them. Yep, another one. He's got these gems in, in, in the book of 1 John. What about forgiveness? What's the one about forgiveness? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we always quote that. They call that the bar of soap, by the way, for the Christians. Because we always quote that when we, we, when we sin, right? We, we, we say, God, come on, you forgive us. Um, what about um, 1 John 4, 4? Little children... You are from God. You have overcome them. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And, you know, as you go on on your Christian walk and you experience spiritual warfare, that's a really neat verse to remember. But the verse I want to focus on today is 1 John 4.11. Beloved, if God has so loved us, we ought to love one another. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's written stacks of commentaries, one of the old writers, English guy, um, he's written a commentary that's probably this big on Romans alone. Okay, so it's quite an authority. He said that when you look at 1 John, sometimes it's very confusing because what you see is that John states a point and then he sort of philosophizes in a big long circle about that point and he comes back to it and bang, he states a doctrine. And when you look at um, uh, sorry, um, Paul, for example, he doesn't. He tends to state a very obvious point and he develops that point. He states a doctrine very succinctly. But here we have this verse here. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. <clears throat> you know, the Christian love is a special kind of love. 
And as I say, when I was 23 and I became a Christian from a non-Christian background, I don't think I would have really appreciated and understood what love was if it wasn't the fact that I was born again when I accepted Christ into my heart and asked him to come into my heart and to forgive me. But also I was very fortunate to be born into, sorry, um, marry into a very strong Christian family, farming family, my wife's family. And in her family she's got six brothers and sisters counting herself and five became ministers. And so I'd come from this completely non-Christian English background, uh, mum and dad to a degree anti-Christian, coming into a Christian family was a bit of a mind blower for me. And, and there was love in our family. But um, sometimes that love was only reciprocated when I did something. And if I didn't do something or follow the instructions to the letter, then there would be sometimes cajoling or like a superiority. You should have done what I told you to do in the first place. But of course, no family is perfect. Not even Christian families are perfect. We all have our, our idiosyncrasies. But when Christ comes into your life, into your family, the kind of love that Christian love is, is slightly different to the love that perhaps non-Christians have. And I think one of the things that we do as, as Christians is we try to elevate that person and bring them into, or we should do anyhow, we try and bring that person to a much closer relationship with Jesus. So the way we love somebody is to try and help them to grow and be more like Christ as the scriptures would have us do. So as we look at this passage, it's evident the type of love that John speaks about is a different kind of love that the love expressed that we see on perhaps TV today. You know, implicit in this passage is that we are to love not just the people we know but the people we don't know, the people we don't see, the unloved or those incapable of giving love to us. They're unsaved and they're unseen. In verse 10 it says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Think about it, folks, when you become a Christian. You know, I'm coming from, as I said, a non-Christian background. I would not have known of Christ and his love for me unless he had started working in my heart and bringing me to an understanding of him and what I needed to do to become a Christian. I wouldn't have known about you know, true Christian love. I wouldn't have known about God. I wouldn't have been drawn to God unless he had started working in my heart in the first place. But you know, the, the love that often we see in the world is, if you obey me, or if you do what I ask, or if you do the things I want you to do, then I will love you. That's not the kind of love that the Bible speaks about. In other words, since Christ died for us when we were dead in our sins, that we may be forgiven, it's, it's then that we come into an eternal relationship with him. And because God loved us, even though we were completely, utterly separated from him, it says in verse 11, Beloved, if God so loves us, we ought to love one another. You know, these two verses here, 1 John 4.10 and 4.11, they're, they're very intimate in describing the love that we should have with each other and with God. Not that we have loved God, but he loved us. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. It's almost like it's a re-emphasis of that greatest commandment where Jesus says in Matthew 22, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to them, said to him, 
You should love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbour as yourself. You know, therefore, how are we to love each other with our, all our minds and all our soul and all our heart? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. How can we possibly do that? Now, I think sometimes that sin has so tainted our hearts that we're just not capable of loving people fully. Would that be true? Think about the effects. Maybe you had an argument with somebody and you've, you've, you've had this argument, it separated you from somebody else. That sin in your life is stopping you, preventing you from loving somebody else. And of course, the remedy to that is to ask forgiveness of the other person. But when you come from a non-Christian background, you don't really know how to forgive another person or to ask for forgiveness. Again, coming into a Christian family, becoming a Christian has shown me how to love my wife and to you know, ask for forgiveness when I make a mistake. I think sometimes what we do is demonstrate like a half love to each other. We only half love each other. We only half love God. Do you know what half love is? It's like when you go up to kiss somebody, this is the best example I can come up with, right? You go up to kiss somebody and you put your hand just in front of your lips like this and then you kiss them. And of course, everybody knows that's, that's not showing true love to another person. You know, when we, were, when we had a little one, my, my little one is now 21, has got a baby, right? When we had a little one, when she's a little pot, we'd give her a fairy kiss or an angel kiss or a butterfly kiss. Do we all know what that is? That's when you go up to your little one and you give them just the slightest kiss on their face, on the side of their face, whatever. And, you know, they'd, they'd love that and they'd want more of those little kisses, you know. But the fact that we can't physically touch God, you know, I feel that, you know, as a Christian, I have received hundreds, thousands of times like a fairy kiss from God. Him just encouraging me in a little way. Not physically, I can't feel a kiss, right? What I'm saying is this. Or, you know, when God blesses you and you get a blessing in some sort of way, it's almost like he's just kissing on the side of the face. He's showing you in, in tangible ways that you are his child, that he loves you. You know, folks, what we can't do is we, we have... Sorry, I just lost my point here. You know, we, we can't truly love our, our brothers and sisters if we don't invest time in them, if we don't financially give to them, if we don't um, invest time in particular to, those, to our, our people. You know, think about people who are overseas. How on earth do we show people overseas who don't know about Jesus that we love them? And yet we know from the great commandment that we are to demonstrate our love in this very tangible way to the people overseas. How are we to do that? You know, when Jesus says that he abides in us in verse 13 today, today's reading, think about that. Is Jesus only half abiding in us? Does he sort of abide us with us from Monday to Friday or just on Sundays when we come to church? You know, of course not. You know, God's promise to us is that he always abides with us for eternity. Hebrews 13 5 says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So when we become a Christian, he abides with us for eternity. You know, when Jesus died for us, I'm trying to talk about how do we show God, how do we show God's love in a full way to each other? How do we love each other in a full way? When Jesus died for us on the cross, did he only half die for us? Did he only half suffer? You know, when we give of ourselves for overseas work, perhaps praying for people, do any half pray for them. 
Do we only half go? Do we only half commit ourselves? You know, what is this confidence about loving God fully or loving our neighbours fully all about? You know, if Christ willingly died for us and he willingly suffered completely for us on the cross, shouldn't we too be willing to fully give of ourselves not only to those we know, but to those we don't know, who don't know Christ. You know, life, God requires us to give our best half. I remember once meeting a bus driver. It's kind of the interesting thing about my present role. You meet some really interesting people. You meet some weirdos, but you meet some really interesting people as well. This particular guy was 64 years of age. He'd been going to church all his life, and God had blessed him along the way. And... Um, he was counting down the days to when he would retire from his bus job. And so he had this idea that when he, he, he uh, retired, he'd sell the house, he would travel around Australia in a caravan and eventually he'd buy a house by the beach. And that was his dream. You can just imagine this guy in the bus every day going to work, you know, thinking about this. Well, he came to us and he wanted to go on a mission trip at 64 years of age to Japan. And he went... And even though this guy was going to a pretty vibrant church for the first time, he suddenly realised the lostness of the lost in Japan. And when he came back after, I think it was about two or three weeks, this trip, came back to Australia, he is now so keen to take other people from his church to Japan so they can minister to, to the Japanese people because he realises that's, you know, like there's, what, 0.2% in the area he works who are evangelical Christians. But also, when I look at that story, I think to myself, oh my goodness, what if this guy had realised at a younger age the needs of the lost overseas? What if he'd taken the gospel overseas at that young age and been a missionary? All those years he could have served God. Maybe I'm just talking foolishly because I know from Joel 2, 12 and 25, it says, Yet even now declares the Lord, Return to me of all your heart with fasting, with weeping and with mourning, and rend your hearts, not your garments, and I'll restore to you the years that the swimming locusts have eaten. In other words, God can use people at any stage of their lives. He can use old people like Moses, like Abraham. He could use a 64-year-old guy because now he's committed to serving God in this way. And yet, as I said before, God requires us to give the best of our lives to him. You know, if God calls us at an early age to serve him and we ignore him until 80 years of age, that's a travesty. You know, early on when Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground and Abel, his brother, brought a, a, the, the, uh, the flock, the first one of his flock and the fat portions, the God, God accepted um, Abel's offering and not Cain's offering. And this is not a story about, you know, God accepted only meat and not vegetables. It's not about that. It's about the heart of the person making that offering. And so he did not accept um, Cain's offering. But you know, in life, God requires of us to give our first best, to love with all our heart, to minister with all our soul, to serve with all our minds. And it may be that God requires us to make sacrifices along the way. That may mean that he wants us to sacrifice our house not have as expensive in a house. So we could use perhaps some of our money, our funds, to help establish the kingdom of God here on earth. You know, the Israelites, when you think about it, in the later years when they'd come out of persecution, out of Egypt, 
back into Israel, you know, God criticized them. Do you remember that story? In Haggai. Did you study Haggai? So God criticized them. He criticized them because here were these Israelites, they'd spent all their money living in panelled houses and rich houses, but it talks about how the temple was left in ruins and, and God was not happy with them. And God says to them, He says, You looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. You know, these are people who, who Haggai had said had sown much, but harvested little, had eaten and drunken much, but never had their fill, had clothed themselves in the latest fashions, but were never satisfied. They'd earned wages to put into bags or holes. They were materialistics, always buying things but never satisfied with the latest purchases. They hadn't given God the best half that he required of them. They were modern-day Cain's giving God only the second best portions. Now, folks, listen to this. Not only does God require of us to give of our material wealth, but he also requires of us to give of our time as well. Now, think about the first thing you do when you wake up in the morning. You know, we should... I would suggest probably the best time for most of us to do the devotions, right? But if we're, if we're doing our devotions in the morning and the first thing we do is to look at our Twitter, you know, or look at our Facebook or to do other things before we actually, or emails or the case may be, before we've actually spoken to God, then we're not really giving him the best half of our, of our devotions or our, of ourselves to him. There's a renowned preacher called, um, he's actually an Anglican guy, right, in England, called Stuart Holden. And inside his quote was a quote that his mother had written down there. And in the quote it says, Begin the day with God. See his face first before you see the face of another. There's another guy called Duncan Campbell. I'm sure you haven't heard of him. Anybody heard of Duncan Campbell? Okay, Scottish preacher. Worked in the New Hebrides, which is upper, upper Scotland, in the 1950s. He'd heard about this and he took it to heart. And he says at the break of day he could hear the farmers getting the horses ready to plough the grounds in the, in the Scottish Isles where he was ministering. And he said this, he said, if men could rise early and work hard for earthly gain, he couldn't understand why Christians could lie in bed and, with a harvest of souls to be reaped and obstacles be removed by prayer. And Duncan Campbell used to say, he said, give God the best days, sorry, give God the best hours of day to serve him. And Duncan Campbell experienced revival in the Scottish Hebrides. Thousands of people came to Christ because of Duncan Campbell's dedication to God and because God decided to minister. Stuart Holden, the guy I mentioned before, he preached this message called The Peril of Accepting Second Best. And in his message he said this, he said, We are tempted to diminish life's dimensions by making ease, comfort and prosperity our chief aim. He says, in short, we are tempted to take away the world or take the way of the world rather than the way of Christ, to go with the multitude and not with the master, to refuse God's will in favour of something second best. Then he goes on to say, he says, how often too is this perilous choice of second best seen in the refusal to openly talk about Jesus? When confronted with the call to do strong service or strenuous service, which comes to every believer in the, in the Saviour, we decline the glory for the sake of ease and pleasure. He says, among them are people, young people, who refuse the call to work in the outer regions 
in favor of the brighter attractions and inducements of home. It had justified their choice by all kinds of reasons. When in reality they have fallen short of the deadly peril of the second best. And he says this. He says, The second best which God allows us in our folly and willfulness to choose is often the kindest way he can show our hearts um, and redeem us from our waywardness. But he says, Leanness of soul is always the consequence of doing what we want to do. Leanness of soul. And we don't follow Christ and give him the first best. One of our missionaries, our missionaries said, the halfway Christian misses, misses the best half. The halfway Christian misses the best half. So folks, how can we love God fully? How can we love others fully? You know, the Bible has a great way of diagnosing our hearts. But it's also got these prescriptions on how we are to, you know, remedy that situation. You know, 2,000 years ago, as I said, Christ died on the cross for each one of us. And when he died for us, he died fully for each one of us. And the reason he died fully is that he recognised that we had no power over the sin in our lives. And by dying fully, we too can have a fullness or um, are able to fully defeat sin in our lives. But I think sometimes the reason why we don't experience, um, how would you say, strength in our walk is because often our hearts are divided. There's that passage where it says, Jesus said, no one can serve two masters for either he will hate the one and love the other or will be devoted to one and despise the other. So what he's saying is, folks, is that you know, if you find in your heart that you are thinking about something in particular all the time, then obviously your heart, you know, compared to Christ, obviously your heart is divided. You've got two masters. You have to make a decision which one you're going to follow. And as, as non-Christians, as you know, you have to make that decision as well. You know, when you come to Christ, we have to make that decision whether to follow the world fully or fully accept Christ into our hearts and accept him on his terms. So folks, what would God say to you this morning? How are we capable of loving God except for the fact that the Holy Spirit works in our hearts? Now the, the verse that's often quoted from Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? Who can understand your heart, your own heart? The only way we're really capable of loving each other is because of what Christ has done in our own hearts. Because only God enables us, only the Holy Spirit enables us to love each other fully enough and also love God fully. So folks, I want to leave us three takeaways as I finish up. Three, three ways to think about what we've talked about this morning. Takeaway number one is this. What sin is preventing you from loving God fully right now? Or what, what's, what thing in your life keeps coming up again and again and is preventing you from loving God? Do you need to take a step of confessing that to God or confessing to somebody else or confessing to your pastor or pastors. Now sometimes sin has such a stronghold on our hearts that the only way forward sometimes is by confessing it to somebody and making that stand against that sin in your life. You know, we can, we can get that bar of soap that I mentioned before, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is unjust to forgive us sins, cleanse us more righteousness. That is true. Sometimes we need to take stronger steps in our lives when we've got a particular beguiling, particularly strong sin operating in our lives. We need to go to somebody and somebody you can trust who won't you know, blurb on you and talk to that person 
ask God for forgiveness, confess that sin. The other takeaway is this, what possession is coming up between you and God? Um, there's a really good book called uh, Margin, Dr. Richard Svensson, a medical doctor, Christian doctor in America. Um, and the book was a big seller in America. It didn't sell so much here, but he says, everything we own requires a commitment of our work time to pay for it and our leisure time to use and care for it. He says, don't buy or keep anything if the time spent on it competes unfavourably with family, service or God. Then he goes on to say this real choice statement. He says, the simpler our possessions, the more time we have for God. The simpler our possessions, the more time we have for God. And folks, when you think about it, if we have more time for God, we have more time for each other. We have more time to express and show and demonstrate our love to each other when our possessions are simpler. Okay, final takeaway. Is God calling you to fully love him? Yes, he is. Is he calling you to love somebody else fully? Of course he is. Next question though. Is he calling you into a full-time service? Is he calling to be a pastor? Is he calling you to be a missionary, to serve him overseas, to give up all yourself in this particular way? You know, as they mobilise it, some of the questions that... Stop the mic. (coughs) Sorry. Um, That one. I hear people say to me is, well, I don't feel called. And that's true. I realise that God calls only certain people to become missionaries, you know. But look in the church, folks. In this church here, you've got a sizable number of people and the church next door. Amongst all of you, has there been a mission, other missionaries going out from the church? I'm sure there are people who've been out who go out on short-term or long-term or whatever the case may be. Are we looking to God to see if he's calling us to full-time missionaries as a pastor or as a missionary? Something we need to think about, pray about, pray for each other. But that's the first thing. People say to me, I'm not called. Um, sometimes when people feel that God's calling them to missionary work, they say, but Lord, I need to complete my secular studies first. I haven't got time to go to Bible college. One of my friends who works in Indonesia said, you know, if God calls you to secular work and he gets you to train for three to four years, shouldn't he also call you into Bible college for the same amount of time you're going to give, you, give your life to him? for another three or four years so you can be effective for his service. It's a challenge. Um, some people say, Lord, I need to support my parents first. So we have a lot of Asian people coming to OMF in Queensland. Um, in the last seven or eight people we've sent out, we've sent an Asian to Japan, another Asian to Japan for six months. One was full-time, one was six months. We've sent an Asian to China. We've sent another Asian to China and a Caucasian husband. We've sent a Caucasian to Thailand. Oh, there's a couple more Asians there, I've forgotten. But anyhow, we've, about 70% of the people going out are, are Asian background. But the question that often they say to me is, I need to support my parents first. You know, they're dependent on me. It's what, what they expect of me. Um, that's one of the excuses that people give me. The other one they say to me is, um, Lord, please wait until I get married and then we can both go together. You know, and you know, I've seen many times, and Irene's been mobilising as well, of people whose hearts are so keen for the field, and they and you can see God wants them to do this, and they marry a lovely Christian guy, usually it's a girl, <laughs> and they don't go. 
I don't go to the field. That is a big shame. Um, and the other one is, Lord, I could earn more money here and support missionaries. I don't want to go. Somebody said to me when I first became a missionary, and I'll finish this final thought, he said to me, Nick, if God calls you to be a missionary, don't lower yourself to be the President of the United States of America. If God calls you to be a missionary, don't lower yourself to be the President of the United States of America. There can be no higher calling. If God calls you to be a pastor or a teacher or a doctor or whatever, if you know that's what God's called you to be, then you're operating in God's will. I'm not saying that missionaries up here and always do it. I'm not saying that. But recognise God's calling on your life. Be sure that you are doing the thing that God has called you to do. Let's finish and pray. Father God, I just thank you for your word. As I said, we can read it many times and, and um, there are many things we need to learn about you. But above all, Lord God, we need to be able to love neighbours in a way that is honouring of you. We need to be able to show the unseen, the unsaved, the unwilling to be loved, your love. We need to take your gospel, Father God, to those people overseas. We need to share this gospel in our communities. Father, I pray that if you are calling people to enter into short-term mission work or long-term mission work, Father, help them to get beyond the excuses and to follow you fully, just as you fully died and surrendered your life for us, that we could fully conquer sin in our lives and we could fully love the people we are sent to reach. So, Lord, I ask these things in the name of Jesus. 